not going to quite finish, but uh, this is the next to the last. So, Lord willing, next Wednesday, we will finish. All right. We're actually going to land. The runway is in sight. We're going to land, but we're not going to get taxied up. All right. To, to unload until next Wednesday night. So, uh, we're going to just get through 6 through 13 of, of uh, Revelation 22, verses 6 through 13 tonight. Let's stand, and uh, we've entitled this lesson, Recapping the Revelation, because that's what I want us to notice here from this passage. Revelation 22, 6 through 13. If you're there, say Amen. And he said unto me, that's the angel, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Notice these words are in red, verse 7. Behold, I come quickly. These are the words of Christ. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard them and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Notice the words of Christ again. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. To give every man according to his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end, the first and the last. I'll go ahead and give him praise. Father, thank you. You are the first and the last. I love and appreciate your presence here tonight. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the dynamic book of Revelation. Speak it into our hearts once again tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, all God's children shout amen. amen. Praise God. God bless you. You can be seated. Trust you is able to pick up a... Uh, just... We have been in these 22 chapters for 45 weeks. And uh, its author, we know, is the Apostle John, was a man of God who at this time we believe was in his early 90s, okay? Probably not too much longer to live. His message is not just inspiring, it is inspired. And these aren't merely the words of a veteran of faith. They are the words we know of God through John. And as John begins to wrap up his inspired record here in chapter 22, uh, he challenges us. He invites us. He reminds us 
He warns us and he deepens our faith with powerful God-breathed words. And I'd like us to keep in mind, church, these are the closing words of God's inspired revelation. He has been talking for thousands of years, right? And, and uh, over 40 authors have penned his words. And now we have come to the last chapter. And so these are the last words from God to us for now. And we've seen a lot. We really have through 45 weeks in this book. We've seen all the great judgments during the time we know is the tribulation. We've seen the glorious return of our Lord in the text. We've seen the millennial reign. We've seen the final judgment. Most recently, we've been allowed to see the coming new heavens and new earth. And now we are reaching the point where we begin to wrap up the book and what we see taking place here at the end is comparable to what we saw take place at the beginning of the book. Because if you recall, chapter 1 served as a preview of the book of Revelation. And now these verses in chapter 22 serves as a summary of the book of Revelation. This final chapter doesn't give us a complete rundown, obviously, of the events covered in the book, but John tries to hit the high points. And now one of the biggest issues, I, I want to mention this before we get into the points I have to cover, one of the biggest issues regarding studying the book of Revelation is that people tend to get so caught up in the, uh, I'm going to call it mystical side, in the mystical side of this book, that they fail to see the theological point that is relevant to our lives every day. And when that happens, that's always a mistake with Scripture. John himself made that mistake uh, back in chapter 4. You, if you recall, he saw the throne room, he was amazed, he was inspired, he was mystified. And, and when he saw the throne and the details surrounding it, he just, he just was overcome. But as the verses progress, there was one important detail in the throne room that John had failed to see. And so in chapter 5, verse 6, one of the 24 elders comes and assists John so that he doesn't overlook some a very important detail, and that is the detail of the lamb. Remember that? The lamb that showed up in the, in the throne room and then approached the throne? Because the elder, he, he said, whoa, 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 wait, John. As John was all beside himself and overcome and emotional, and, and, and one of the 24 elders approaches John, and he says, weep not, okay? And he said, directed his attention to the lamb because that lamb was about to change everything, right? And John then realizes that if you see the throne room and you miss the lamb, you've missed the most dynamic detail, right? And so it's like from that point on, John is concerned 
that we are sure to see the main thing. Don't miss the main thing. And so in this last chapter, he lays out six essentials. Notice on your uh, study guide tonight, six essentials that we should see in this revelation. So I'd like us to highlight these six key elements and, and understand the purpose really behind this entire book that we have been in for weeks. All right, so that's where we're going. Number one, I, I want us to know that before we can get very far in this study, before we could get out of chapter one in this prophetic book, we had to come to grips with a basic yet essential truth, which is, notice on your study guide, the book of Revelation is 100% absolute, infallible, inerrant, guaranteed to happen fact. Amen. As with all of Scripture, its relevance stands or falls based on its credibility. And this is why, as fundamental believers, we fight hard for what's called the inerrancy of Scripture. And this book is no different. This book of Revelation is not the result of some stargazing dreamer some poor fellow that's out of his mind. This book came about as divine revelation from Christ. And we need to realize that for this New Testament prophetic book, more so than any of the Old Testament prophetic books, because the reason is because unlike the other Old Testament prophetic writings, this one is yet to be fulfilled. No one questions the prophecy of, of Jeremiah, for example, anymore. Why? Because it was fulfilled. No one questions Ezekiel, Isaiah, Malachi, because they actually came to pass. But we are still waiting on the fulfillment of most of this prophetic revelation. And therefore, our willingness to obey this book is directly affected by whether or not we believe it is true. This is the purpose, I think, for verse 6. God told John to simply write these words are faithful and true. God desired to leave little doubt in any of our minds that there was a chance that the book of Revelation was a mistake. Revelation 19.9, Revelation 21.5 also speak of how these words are faithful and true. God is telling us that even though these prophecies are yet future, they are 100% exact. He then reveals why we should know these words are exact because in the next phrase of verse 6, he says, the Lord God... Of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly uh, be done. We can know this prophecy is true because it originated from the same God who issued all the other prophecies 
that have already been fulfilled. So the book of Revelation stands or falls on the credibility of God. If God has been credible through the rest of history, then we have no reason to doubt his claim that this prophecy is reliable. The fact is God has yet to give us one reason to doubt his word. And this would be no time to start. These words are faithful and true, so we can bank on them. Amen. You can rely on them. Okay, so point number two. Not only... grips with the fact that this book is precise, then we can better understand and apply what it says. John reminds us of the overarching theme of the book of Revelation because the crux of the book is this, what he states in verse 7. Behold, I come, what? Quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Christ issued this prophecy in order to send a dose of urgency through our veins. If we gather nothing else from our study, hopefully we understand that Christ is returning. And it won't be long, right? He's coming quickly. This is a recurring truth that has been mentioned over and over and over ever since chapter 1 because Revelation 1-7, he said, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. So this is also a truth that Christ repeatedly issued while he was here on earth. For example, John 14, 1 through 3. But not only did Christ teach us that he would return, he also taught us the importance of understanding that we must be ready for that return. Because Matthew 24, 42 says, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. And the simple truth taught in Revelation is one that Christ repeatedly emphasized on earth. He would leave, but he would come again. And when he returns, be ready. Because he's coming at an hour when we don't expect him. Now, since Christ is coming and at an hour when we don't expect him, we would do good to remember, blessed is he who readeth the words of the prophecy of this book. So this is the second part of the central message of Revelation. Not only must we believe that Christ is returning, we must let that truth change our lives. Imagine, imagine Christ returned, let's say, five minutes ago. Is there anything you wish you had done differently today? Think about that. See, we must believe that Christ could return at any moment and allow that belief to change our lives. How many know that's what true faith really does? True faith produces righteous action. And 1 Peter 1, 17 says, If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. It means reverence. See, each of us should live each day like the next second could be spent standing before our judge. Right? 
Christ gave us this book to warn us that he could return at any moment. And blessed is the person who believes that and lives like that. Point number three, the result of the revelation. And these are verses eight through nine because another essential truth is that we should all get from the book of Revelation a certain response because we have, we have seen God's power over evil. We have seen Christ glorified. We have seen God's provision for his people. We have seen the judgment of the wicked. We have seen uh, the marriage of the Lamb. Having seen all of that in this book, it ought to cause something to happen within us. Because it did for the 24 elders. It caused them to what? Worship. Because Christ is showcased as the author of all creation. In chapter 4, verse 10, the 24 elders worship because he's worthy. In 5 and 8, they worship because of the scope of salvation. In 7 and 12, they worship because of the judgment of the spiritual harlot known as Babylon. See, because of these great truths, we should all be motivated to give glory, to give honor, power and dominion and praise to the one who was and who is and who is to come. Because here in verse 8, when John sees this, he's in such awe that he immediately falls down to worship. And in fact, he worships prematurely at the feet of an angel. How many know there's only one worthy of our worship? And the word here I've read, the word that is used here in the Greek for worship is a compound word. Pro, P-R-O, meaning toward, and kunu, which means well, this is where it gets interesting because etymologists show us that kunu in the Greek is related to a high German root word spelt K-U-S-S. It looks like it would be pronounced cuss, which is transliterated into English, giving us our word Kiss. So historically, the word in the Greek that John uses when he worships, it means to kiss toward. It actually developed into the religious practice of blowing kisses. Did you know the Greeks showed their adoration for their gods by blowing kisses toward their idols as a display of their adoration and worship? It developed further into an act of bowing before a god and, and even a superior while at the same time moving your hand near your mouth. Uh, uh, historians say in a circular motion, okay, which meant you were blowing kisses toward your superior. So over time, the word expanded in meaning, 
It, it, it meant actually worship here come to mean trembling before your superior, serving, simply bowing to your superior, which is really what John is doing here. He is paying homage to this angel. He is communicating that he believes the angel is superior to him. Okay, He isn't necessarily worshiping the angel uh, as an idol because that he thinks the angel is worthy of worship. He is simply paying homage to the angel because all that the angel has showed him and explained to him. And that explains the context for the angel's response in verse 9 where he basically says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. Okay, In other words, I'm not your superior. I'm just a fellow servant of God. Just like you are. I'm not better than you. The angel effectively educates John that in the hierarchy, so to speak, of heaven, of heaven, no one pays homage to any superior except to God. What an interesting perspective. So, so blow kisses to God alone, the angel says, because he alone deserves adoration. See, every time you speak highly of God, you know what you're doing? blowing a kiss to him. Every time you thank him for your salvation, you're blowing a kiss to him. Every time you obey his word, you blow a kiss towards the sovereign Lord. See, you are paying homage to his superiority over your life. So the angel reminds John that he's a fellow servant of John's. His brethren is a prophet. And, and those who heed the words of this book are his brethren. And the angel's advice to John is simple. Worship God only. That is another key truth we should each get from this book. God and God alone is worthy of our worship. Yeah, we saw how Satan wanted it. The Antichrist fought for it. The false prophet demanded it. Yet in the end, only God deserves it. Only God deserves it. And we have seen this continually. Most recently in the understanding that heaven is all about the glory of God and the worship that he truly deserves. If we have studied through this book and have not yet seen that God deserves worship and that he will receive worship, then we've missed one of the most vital points. I pray we haven't missed it. I don't think we have because we've had some great times of worship. Number four. The requirement of the revelation. This takes us to verse 10. Because found here in this verse is another key concept that I hope we've gathered as we've studied this book. It is something that has been required of each of us. When he said, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. What is he saying? Church, don't take this truth and hide it under your hat. God did not title this book The Secret of Jesus Christ or The Surprise Attack of Jesus Christ. No, he called it The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is to be truth revealed. Christ didn't reveal this truth to us so that we could just sit back and do nothing with it. He gave us this truth so that we could herald it or spread it. Okay? That's the requirement of it. Okay? We are required 
to reproduce it. Notice that on your study guide. As in Ezekiel 33, we, we are now the, the watchman, so to speak, standing on the wall, the city wall, looking out across the plains. We see the coming doom. Now we are accountable to tell the city. We are accountable to tell the world what is coming. God has appointed each of us as watchmen on the walls, watchmen in our families, watchmen in our communities, and in our country. He's revealed truth to us that we are responsible to repeat. This isn't a secret that cannot be shared. We cannot unknow the things we have now seen. And as those who know them, we are accountable for proclaiming them. We know where the world is headed, right? We know why the world is going to be judged, right? We know about the coming deception. We know about the coming tribulation. And we know who does and who doesn't go to heaven. It's a message our world needs to hear. Don't get me wrong. Our world doesn't want to hear it. How many know they would much rather continue on in their own preconceived notions of heaven and their belief that everybody's going to go there. But their disdain does not justify our silence. We are called to make sure those around us know the truth, what is revealed in the book of Revelation. Number five, the reason for the revelation. This takes us to verse 11. The reason is to warn, warn the world. Some may say, but I can't make a person believe the warning that I issue to them. See, as we learn here, though, that's not the purpose. We aren't here, church. We are not here to change a person's destination. You say, what? Mm -mm. We're, we aren't here to change a person's destination. Why? Because only God can do that. We are here to render men and women without excuse. We are here to make sure they hear the truth regardless of what they do with the truth. Perhaps you remember the calling that God placed on his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 verses 8 through 10. God told Isaiah to go. And prophesy to the people of Israel. He says, even though their ears are going to be dull, even though their eyes are going to be dim, and even their hearts are going to be insensitive. Isaiah could have said, what's the use? But that was not his burden to bear. Hmm? Earlier, I referred to the watchman passage out of Ezekiel. Several times God uses the phrase there, whether they listen or not, a watchman proclaims what's coming. It's up to the individual what they're going to do with the information. Right? Because why? Results aren't the goal. Faithfulness is the goal. We are called to be faithful in proclaiming truth. And the fact of the matter is that for some, the truth leads to repentance and righteousness. And we celebrate that. 
But for others, it leads to rebellion and judgment. God did not give us this revelation so that we would be more successful in a sense in changing our world. He gave us this revelation so that we would faithfully proclaim it and that he could then accomplish his purposes. Some hear the words of this prophecy and they scorn it, they reject it. That simply reveals that there, there's sinful, filthy people who only know how to do wrong. And even the graphic truths contained in this prophetic book will not penetrate their hardened heart. We've seen that. They raise their fist at God. They curse God when he does, when he bends over backward to reach them. See, Hebrews 6, 4 speaks of a drastic day in a person's life when they have so hardened their heart to the calling of the Holy Spirit that repentance is no longer possible. Right? When Israel was hardened in sin and refused to repent, this is what God told Hosea. He said, Ephraim has joined herself to idols. And here's three Words, let him alone. Let him alone. There comes a point and a place. God says, let him alone. Once confronted with the drastic truths of this book, some will fail to repent simply because of their hardened heart and their fate will be sealed. We read this several times in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, 9, 16, 11, 9, 20 through 21. And one of the reasons for the book of Revelation is to really, get this, secure the hardened heart for eternal destruction. That's the reason for the warning in verse 11 that says, He that's unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. Once a person passes from time into eternity, he or she forfeits any possibility for change. In Dante's famous novel, uh, Inferno, he inscribes the following words over the gates of hell. Remember, quote, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. If you are filthy at that time, you will be filthy forever. If you are holy, you will be holy forever. What you were when you checked out of earth, you will be for eternity. No less, no more. If you walked with Christ in this life, the good thing is you're going to walk with him forever. Isn't that great? But if you've lived your life on your own, it's not going to be good. You'll be separated from him forever. Sobering, but, but also on the flip side, it's encouraging for those of us who are trusting in Christ. It encourages us to continue trusting and practicing his righteousness. Because this book serves to encourage the, the 
discourage the downtrodden believer, persevere because we're going to win in the end. Christ tells those who are doing righteous deeds to still practice righteousness, those who are holy to still keep themselves holy by God's grace because the finish line is coming in view. Right? And this is a good reminder to all of us so that if people don't respond to this message the way we think they should, then perhaps we won't be motivated to change it or stop preaching it. We're going to still preach the truth. We'll still proclaim the truth regardless of how it's received. Praise God. That's the idea. (coughs) Finally, point six. The reward of the revelation. One thing I hope we've gained from this book is that there's coming a reward for how we live this life on earth. There's a judgment day approaching. It's referenced in Revelation 20 and 11, Hebrews 9, 27, Matthew 16, 24. Why? Because this life is not all there is. And God continually urges us not to live for this world, but to live for the next. Christ said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole what? The whole world yet loses his own soul. For this whole world, even if it could be gained, it's not going to endure. It is going to pass away. And so it is foolish to make our ultimate goal, attaining it. Okay? So 1 John 2.17 informs us that this world is passing away, but the one who doeth the will of the Lord is going to live forever. Praise God. The point is, there is coming a judgment. No one lives this life unnoticed. Everyone gives an account. For some, it's a good thing. Others, it's a tragic thing. If we have been faithful in obeying Christ, we will be rewarded. If we haven't, our reward will be much less enjoyable. Hallelujah. I hope as we've studied, we've learned that this prophecy is true. Jesus is returning. That should motivate us to worship. It should motivate us to broadcast that message. It should help us in determining our own lifestyles. Why? Because judgment is certain. If we get nothing else from this book, may we please get that. These are truths that can change our lives. John makes it clear that all he has seen, all he has learned and transferred to us by the inspired text should produce at least three final results in us. Number one, a growing anticipation of delight in the coming day. I didn't put these on your handout. I added them later. A growing anticipation of delight in that coming day. Secondly, a commitment to application in light of that coming day. And finally, a daily adoration for the one who alone has promised us that day and who alone can deliver just what he promised. Can we help but not love him? 
church, I said, can we help but not love him and live our lives for him knowing that one day, one day, by God's grace, we will live with him forever. So anticipate that day. Live in light of that day. Blow him kisses as you wait for that day. And thank him ahead of time for his eternal future of glory. Oh, what glory that's going to be. What incredible, eternal glory. In verse 13, Christ said it. I am Alpha. I am Omega. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. I'm the first. I'm the last. Over the millenniums, mankind, we have had considerable say in various matters. But in the end, Christ reminds us here, God gets the last word. I said God is the one that gets the last word. So I close with this simple personal reminder for us tonight. We all face situations that look permanent. Like they're never going to work out. And it is easy to get discouraged. It is easy to accept that it wasn't meant to be. But listen, church, I want to remind us tonight. It's not over till God says it's over. The medical report may not look good. But that sickness doesn't have the last word. God is going to have the final say. I feel like to tell somebody tonight, you may have struggled with an addiction for years. But the addiction doesn't have the final say. People may be opposing you, but people don't have the final say. No disrespect, but the doctor, the experts, the judge, they may be good people, but they're not the one on the throne. And because they're not the one on the throne, the one on the throne is going to have the last say. Hallelujah. You've got to remember this as we close this book. This is what happened 2,000 years ago. Satan and all the forces of darkness were celebrating. They already shot the confetti poured the Gatorade, started their victory party. They thought they had defeated Christ, nailed him to the cross. What they didn't realize was Christ prophesied not only his death, but also his resurrection. And they may have gotten the first word, but they didn't get the final word. Christ said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up again. Christ just borrowed Joseph's tomb because he knew he was only going to use it for three days. So while Satan was having their little party, Christ comes walking in, takes away the keys to death and hell, and said, I am he that liveth. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. Praise God. I said, tonight the enemy may be celebrating over you, telling you that you're done and you've seen your best days. But I want to leave this with you. You need to let the enemy know he's not the one that's going to have the last word. You may be down, but you're going to get back up. You can still arise. I may be facing an illness, but healing is coming. The setback in my finances is not permanent. God is my provision. He is Jehovah Jireh. And the final word says, your latter days are going to be better. Praise God.
Praise God. Hallelujah. Like with Lazarus, it looked pretty bad, but Christ spoke words and he comes back to life. Christ always has the last word because he's Alpha and Omega. Somebody praise him. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet and give him some worship. Hallelujah. He said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He will always have the last word. He will always have the final say. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Glory, 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 glory. Be encouraged, church of God. Be encouraged, saint of God. Woo, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I want you to just come and give him praise. If you feel like it, come around the front. Just give him some praise for a moment. Oh, that's one thing that this study in the book of Revelation hopefully has taught us. Church, there is one, there is only one who really deserves that praise. Why don't you give him some praise here in the middle of the week, being the Alpha and Omega. God, I worship you. God, I praise you. Hallelujah. Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy.